Luke 18. As you are finding your place uh, this morning, just a reminder, um, out on the table we have a couple of invitations out in the foyer of upcoming events. We have one for upcoming family conference and also an invitation for upcoming fall festival. Grab some of those, let people know about those events, and uh, we just appreciate you helping us get word out about those. Family conference is just coming up in a few weeks, September 23rd, 24th, with Carrie Schmidt, and uh, we just would eagerly invite all of you, our entire church family, to see if you can make it out to that. Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, we will be providing dinner on Friday night uh, before the conference begins, and uh, there will be child care for, for both uh, segments of that. And so get word out. We want to be a blessing and a help to families. Um, family conference coming up towards the end of this month. Luke chapter 18. And uh, just invite you to stand with me one final time because I'm going to talk for a long time as we read, we read our scripture. Uh, Luke chapter 18, we're reading verses 15 to 17. And they brought unto him also infants. that He would touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, permit, allow little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. I think you may be seated. Every school child in, uh, in the United States knows about July 4, 1776. That's the day when our, our nation was really formally born, though I think you could probably trace history further back to where, in many ways, long before that, uh, the, the colonies, you know, behaving as sort of an independent nation. But that was the day that the Declaration of Independence was formally adopted by the Continental Congress. The big vote actually happened a couple of days before, July 2nd. But that was the day where it was formally ratified, signed, and became sort of the effective proclamation. We look back on the Declaration of Independence, and we're like, man, what a great moment in history. Um, in reality, the people who wrote it and signed it, they recognized there was history going on, but it was essentially wartime propaganda to be like, here's why we're fighting with the British. Uh, it was not until later generations that the Declaration of Independence began to be viewed as encapsulating the, the core principles that make our nation what it is. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It was really Abraham Lincoln who grabbed onto that in the run-up to the Civil War during the Civil War to say, that really expresses who we want to be as, an, as a nation. And today we, we recognize this as as just a core document expressing these are the ideals of our, of our nation, a declaration of independence that uh, our nation is now distinct from Great Britain, not just colony, but a, the, uh, are and ought to be recognized as free. Well, I'm calling our sermon today a declaration of dependence because really as believers, we need to declare on a regular basis that we are dependent on our Heavenly Father it's a declaration of dependence. Now, where are we at in the, in the journey to Jerusalem? We're, we're doing sort of a sub-series here that we're calling kingdom citizenship. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Right, think about what citizenship entails. And last week we talked about the language of kingdom citizenship. We as a nation have a, have a common language that we speak, though depending on where you are, you may really have doubts as to whether you can understand somebody from like New England and whether they can understand you. Uh, we're a common people united or divided by a, a common language. But there's this common language of the, the kingdom, of, uh, kingdom of heaven, which is the language of confession. We saw that with the publican and the, the Pharisee going into the temple to pray. 
What is the language that we speak of as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? It is the language of confessing our sin and living a life of repentance. Right? Unless you are a repenter, you're not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven is one who has turned from sin and is living a life of repentance. This week, we see Jesus continuing on this theme with children being brought to him. In the next, next uh, passage we see in verses 18 to 30, the rich young ruler, right? And he comes along and he's like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Again, the question is the question of salvation. That is what unites really Luke 18 verse 9 all the way to Luke 19 verse 10. Is this focus on what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be saved? What are the requirements of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. you got this language. There's this declaration of dependence. There is this sense of, in the coming weeks, of just complete surrender to Jesus and recognizing that he is our all in all. There is the atonement that is purchased and predicted by Jesus. There is this miraculous work that Jesus does for blind Bartimaeus. And then we see the transformation that the gospel works in a repentant heart with Zacchaeus in, in chapter 19. So in these brief verses we're looking at this morning, Jesus says, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you won't enter into it. What is it about children that make them this this object, this example, this model of what it means to enter the kingdom? It is the dependence on someone else, right? That children are brought, there's this need, there's this reliance. And that is what is required for you and for me to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's not independence. I've got this. I can do it on my own. And, I'll, you know, God helps those who help themselves. No, 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 no. It is complete and utter and abject dependence on Jesus and on his finished work. So if the language of kingdom citizenship is confession, the declaration of kingdom citizenship is a declaration of complete and utter dependence. Jesus uses children as the example here of what this looks like. So verse 15, we we dive into the story. They brought unto him also infants that he would touch them, that is, lay hands on them to bless them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called called unto them unto him and said, permit the children to come unto me. We see this clashing view of children between how the disciples view them and how Jesus views them. And the first truth that we see here about children from this text is that children matter. Children matter. This this account is recorded in Matthew. It's recorded in Mark. It's recorded in Luke. Three different times God saw fit to record this account of people bringing their, their, their infants to Jesus to bless them. The disciples are like, oh, no, 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 don't bring them. And Jesus is like, no, most definitely, because people who are citizens of the kingdom are people who are like these little children. Children matter. Now, just a little bit of background here, because we, we sort of read this and are like, okay, kids do matter. We, we invest billions of dollars as a nation every year in uh, you know, education and child care. And I was just over at Target yesterday going through the baby section. Oh, my goodness. There's like so much stuff. And it's like, that's $20 for that little baby thing. Like, it's a whole industry, right? And by the way, that's good. We, we should really take care of our kids. But listen, we... We as a society sort of intuitively recognize that children do matter, right? We're like, of course you would, you know, you would get a car seat and make sure your child is safe and, and all of these things. But listen, that was not the case in the ancient world. Uh, the, the, the ancient world is a, is a foreign place. They do things differently there. In the ancient world, children were among the lowest of the low. They were viewed as little more than just adults in the making, 
Children simply existed to carry on the family name, to work in the family business, and to enhance the family honor. They were seen as just financial assets to make your life better. You're like, great, more kids, more workers for the, for the farm, right? That's how they were viewed, not as having actual value in themselves. In the Greco-Roman world, all right, this is the world in which Jesus lived, 50% of children died before the age of 10. I bet that's mind-boggling. 50% die by the age of 10. Girls were often unwanted, right? Well, they can't work in the fields like the, like the boys can. And children who were born with some kind of a disability or some kind of weakness were often just taken to the garbage dump and left there to die. This was rampant in the Roman Empire, exposing children to the elements and just simply abandoning, abandoning them to die. Nobody took issue with it. It was commonplace. Murdering your infant child was entirely acceptable until Christianity took over the Roman Empire until the year A.D. 374. So this is the world in which Jesus says, yeah, bring the kids to me. Is a world where children are unwanted, where they are unvalued, and where they were often simply thrown out to the elements. By the way, the ancient world, uh, there were also forms of abortion that were practiced. Uh, prostitution's rampant. Um, unfaithfulness is rampant, and so abortion is a convenient way to try to cover up those sins and sort of protect your honor. One of the earliest works uh, of Christianity outside of the New Testament is a document called the Didache, uh, written probably just a few decades after the New Testament is completed. And it gives us interesting insight into sort of Christian practice. Didache 2, verse 2 says this, Do not abort a fetus or kill a child that is born. And by the way, you can go through ancient uh, Christian literature and consistently opposition to abortion, opposition to exposure of children. Christianity had a radically different view of children than the Roman Empire around it. Now, the disciples, we see their view is, you know, maybe a little bit better. They're not like wanting to, you know, leave the children out there or whatever, but they don't want them to be intruding uh, on Jesus' time. So we've got these parents who are wanting to bring infants, and that the, the word there, I, I appreciate the translation here of that word. It is a word referring to infants. By the way, same Greek word for the baby inside the womb is outside of the womb. So when uh, Mary and Elizabeth meet earlier in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, and the, the baby leaps in her womb, same, same Greek word. Uh, same Greek word, whether the baby is in the womb, outside of the womb. It is human life from the point of conception, made in the image of God. But here we are in Luke 18. Remember where Jesus is at. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to this Passover. There are thousands, tens of thousands of pilgrims all following the same route with him. By this point, he's probably in the Transjordan area, what, you know, modern-day Jordan, on the, if you're looking at a map, the right side of the Jordan River, a uh, region known as Perea. He's coming up closer and closer to Jerusalem. People are all around him. Maybe he's in a house stopped by the roadway. And there are throngs of people trying to get to Jesus. As always, he's surrounded by enormous throngs of people. And here's a line of parents showing up, cradling, squirming babies in their arms. Maybe some of the babies are crying and carrying on. You can picture the scene, right? Here's this parade of parents coming with their babies, trying to get close to Jesus. We're going to picture the line of these parents sort of circling the house like the, the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. We want to get there. We want, the, our, we want Jesus, this great rabbi, to bless our children. We want, we want him to lay hands, pray over them, to pronounce a blessing over them. Uh, we, we see that, by the way, in the Old Testament, Genesis 48. We've got Jacob, he's an old man, 
blessing, laying his hands on his children, on his grandchildren, pronouncing a blessing, a prophecy. It's likely that's what they want Jesus to do, is lay his hands on their head, pray over them. These parents, they want Jesus, this great rabbi, to speak this word over their babies. But the baby parade comes to an abrupt halt. The disciples are like, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, no, you can't come to Jesus. We are the gatekeepers who comes to Jesus. And only important people get to see Jesus. Babies are not important. So mm, go home, come back another time. So we see in verse 15, so they want to bring these these infants. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Stop, keep these kids away from Jesus. Shoot, get out of here. This is just for big people, just important people. So where does society view children as expendable? And as worthless, the disciples viewed them as an intrusion. And yes, an improvement on the view, but still a, long, a far cry from what God would intend. Now, I think their, their motives were probably pure, right? Jesus is a busy guy. He's tired. He's got people around him all the time. He's got sermons to preach. He's got Pharisees to argue with. He's got scribes to, to show that, they, that they've got crazy ideas. He's got important stuff to do. Babies, really? They don't really matter. The disciples scold the parents for daring to interrupt Jesus. Jesus is too important to be bothered with babies. James Edwards writes this. This attitude reflects the broader cultural view regarding children. He says this, When will search ancient literature in vain for sympathy toward the young, comparable to that shown them by Jesus? In other words, what Jesus is doing here, We kind of read it because we're like, yeah, Jesus and the little children. Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world. We take it as a given, but this is not a given. This is revolutionary for a rabbi and an important person to say, kids matter. So the disciples, they've kind of missed the point of what Jesus has been teaching them all along. They missed the fact that he values the unimportant. Back in Luke 14, he told them the story about when when you have a banquet, Don't invite all your friends who can invite you back to their house, but invite the weak, invite the lame, invite the blind, invite those who are weak and overlooked by society. They've not internalized that lesson. Luke 15, when the publicans are coming to them and the Pharisees are get the publicans out of here, Jesus tells the parable. The guy goes after the sheep. The woman goes after the coin. The father awaits the son to say individuals matter. Those who are weak and overlooked by society matter. The disciples missed that. So society viewed children as intrusive, as burdensome, as weak, as unimportant, and so did the disciples. But look at the, look at the view of Jesus. Look at verse 16. But Jesus called them unto him. Jesus summoned them, is literally what the word is, and said, Suffer, permit, allow little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. Children mattered to Jesus. Because they mattered to Jesus, they need to matter to us. Through the, through the Gospels, we see Jesus healing children. There's the story of Jairus. He's got a 12-year-old girl. Comes to Jesus, begging him, you have to come heal my daughter or she's going to die. And we know the story. He gets stopped on the way. The girl dies. And Jesus comes to her very tenderly, as Mark records it, and says, Talitha kumi, I say unto thee, daughter, arise. Takes her by the hand, lifts her up. Little 12-year-old girl Jesus had time for. John's Gospel, John 4, there's a, an official who's got a little boy. Jesus had time to go heal him. Jesus made time for the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was afflicted by a demon. 
He had time for boys. He had time for girls. He had, for cho- had time for children of the rich, time for children of the poor, time for Jews, time for Gentiles. Children mattered to Jesus. You know, we take for granted that children matter, right? And thankfully, we recognize, yeah, children matter. But it's only because of the influence of Jesus of Nazareth that that is the case. If you go to societies that don't have a Christian background, they'll be like, what's the big deal with worrying about kids? What's the big deal about protecting kids? It's because of our Christian heritage that we have that. This is, we don't think that children matter because of the, you know, the legacy of Greek or Rome. Oh, no, no. It's because of the influence of Christianity that we have this assumption in our world today. And in our text here, we see Jesus summoning the children. So over the objections of the pouty disciples who are like, you're, you're, you're too important for this. And by the way, what are they trying to protect? Their own self-importance, right? We want to we hang out with the important person, Jesus, and we want to make sure everyone else sees him as important by being careful gatekeepers. This is all about carefully crafting a self-image. Over their objections, he summons the children. No, bring the kids in. He made time for them, and he tenderly and joyfully blessed them. Mark's gospel pictures Jesus cradling these babies in his arms. Here, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, who knows all of the mysteries of all of the questions that science cannot answer, holding little babies in his arms, blessing them, praying over them, talking to them. So suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not uh, and by the way, the, the, the them is referring to the children, not just the parents. It's not just, well, yeah, I need to talk to the parents, or we'll let the kids come as a way to get to the parents. No, the, the children themselves matter to Jesus. Allow them, the babies, to come. In other words, Jesus is blessing the babies not merely to placate their parents, be like, okay, now they'll like me, but to demonstrate his love for the children themselves. He tells the disciples, quit forbidding them. Quit putting obstacles between them and me. Now, Jesus will seize the moment to offer some very, very powerful and direct teaching about the kingdom of God. He says, for of such is the kingdom of God, and you need to receive the kingdom like a little child receives it if you're going to enter into it. But can you see the simple fact? Children mattered to Jesus. He didn't overlook them. He didn't exclude them. He didn't ignore them. We should follow the example of Jesus. As a church, we ought to be eager to welcome children into our gatherings. Listen, we've got some young people who come into, the, especially the song service, and sometimes they make a little bit of noise, right? And there's some little distractions. And it can be like, well, what are they doing here? They're here gathering with God's people to hear the word of God and to sing hymns with God's people and to learn just the, this routine of, of gathering and worshiping. That's a beautiful thing. And I would rather be in a church where there's kids running around in a little bit of chaos than a church where that's not the case. We want to be a church where children are welcomed and loved and embraced and taught and wanted. We're going to look for ways to teach truth to these precious little ones. That's why we have Awana starting up this Wednesday. Just give you the plug for Awana. It's a, a club program designed for children who are elementary aged, even a little bit younger, where they come and they memorize God's word where they are taught God's word, where they get God's word into their hearts, into their lives. We think that's important enough to take a Wednesday night and get a bunch of different people who could probably think of other things they'd rather do on a Wednesday night to say, this matters, this is important to us as a church. 
for these kids to come to learn God's word. This is why we have Sunday school classes. This is why, parents, you ought to be teaching your children the Bible. In fact, the Bible commands you as a parent to be teaching your children the Bible. This is why, parents, you need to prioritize bringing your kids to church whenever the doors are open. I'll tell you, one of the most important lessons I learned from my parents was just the fact that reading the Bible, going to church, wasn't an if. It wasn't like, well, maybe we'll do that today if it fits in. But it was a given. And you have no idea how much that can shape a young heart when, well, of course we go to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night. Of course we come back on Wednesday night to where we just knew that that mattered, right? We knew that prioritizing the things of God mattered. Now, we didn't always get everything that we should have out of the sermons or whatever. And there were times where I would have rather. But just over the years, think of what that can do is just saying this, God needs to be important in your life, in your routine, and all of these things. And listen, we understand that external structures cannot change internal affections. But exposure to the truth of God's word can. So just encourage parents and families. Jesus loves children. They matter to him. And when you begin to disciple those young hearts, and you, you do the hard work of saying, we're going to do family devotions. We're going to load the kids up, get them to church. We're going to make sure they're there at Awana. We're going to make sure other kids are being taught. You are joining Jesus in something that mattered immensely to him. Just encourage you. This matters, right? And it, it fits into the very mission of Jesus. We now come into the, really the meat of this message, of this passage, and it says that children model conversion. So children matter. Jesus is saying they matter in and of themselves. But he then takes the opportunity to say, let me teach you something about kingdom citizenship. Let me teach you something about the gospel. Let me teach you something about spiritual reality from the way these children come. The end of verse 16, he says, here's the reason why you should permit children to come to me. He says, for of such is the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, seems to suggest and imply the children can and do receive the kingdom of God. Now, not as infants, but you're training these hearts to be to a place where they are ready to receive the kingdom of God. Children can and regularly do come to faith in Jesus Christ. Should be teaching them the gospel, for of such is the kingdom. Now, I, I just want to highlight something. He says, for of such is the kingdom. He doesn't say, to such belong the kingdom. He doesn't say that all children are just automatically saved. Uh, if you've ever raised kids, you know that they are born with a sin nature, and they need repentance, and they need Jesus. What he is saying is the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who become like children. Uh, not in a childish, like, immaturity, but in the sense of recognizing their dependence and their helplessness, and their need of a Savior. Now, oftentimes, and I just need to just do a little aside here, this verse, for whatever reason, and it, it boggles my mind, becomes the proof text for infant baptism. Oh, look, Jesus said infants can come to him, therefore we should baptize infants. Um, I've read over this passage several different times. I translated it from Greek as part of my sermon prep. And there is not one drop of water in this text. Like, I have no idea how we get infant baptism from this text. Um, or from the Bible, for that matter. Uh, I heard a, a joke. I think it was Kent Hughes. Um, he was co-writing a book with a Presbyterian. And they were writing a chapter on baptism. And Kent Hughes is like, hey, I've got a really good thing for you. Kent Hughes is a Baptist. He's like, here's everything the Bible says about infant baptism. And he handed the guy a piece of paper that was blank, right? So, um, 
just want to just throw that out there. Whenever we see in the book of Acts people being baptized, it comes after faith in Jesus Christ. So as many as received the word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them 3,000 souls. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius hears the message and he believes and he receives the Holy Spirit. And Peter's like, hey, who are we to forbid water for these people who have received the Holy Spirit as well? Acts 16, we have the Philippian jailer. They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And here's where people are like, well, there had to be infants at home, obviously. There's no infants mentioned anywhere. And the verse goes on to say that everyone in his house as well exercised saving faith. So we're going to say that the Bible tells us what we ought to do. Uh, the Bible doesn't support infant baptism. Um, it simply is just putting water on, your, uh, on a child. It does not do anything. It's not, it's not actually baptism. Baptism, biblically speaking, defined is baptism of a believer in Jesus Christ by immersion. Uh, now, young children can come to faith in Jesus. Therefore, young children could be baptized if they have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Just throwing that out there as, as a little theological aside, if you want to talk about it more, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. Um, all snarkiness aside, I'm happy to have the conversation uh, about what the Bible teaches on that. And by the way, if you've not been baptized by immersion as a believer... Come talk to me as well. It is a step of obedience that the Bible lays out this expectation that all those who believe in Jesus follow him in baptism, declaring their faith, saying to the world, I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, to not follow, the, follow Jesus in baptism uh, would be disobedience. Um, so just as the aside, I'll get off that. Come back, to the, come back to the text. We'll circle back around now to what this text is actually about. It's not about baptism. It's not about children automatically going to heaven. It's about the kind of attitude that you and I need to have if we are going to go to heaven, if we are going to be citizens of the kingdom. Children model conversion. They model what it looks like to have saving faith. So he says in verse 17, Verily I say unto you. Now, by the way, Jesus does not use that word verily all the time willy-nilly through the, the gospel of Luke. In fact, only six times does he use this. When you get this, this is sort of a big flashing sign to say, what I'm about to say is really important and you need to listen. What I'm about to say is true and it is solemn. Here is a declaration from God. Verily, truly, I say unto you, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter there. And he says, unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you're not entering into the kingdom. Very simple. If you're trying to receive the kingdom any other way, you're trying to enter the kingdom any other way, you won't enter it. Now, this ties into other statements Jesus makes in Matthew 5. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom. In other words, you must have a righteousness that is completely and totally perfect to enter the kingdom of heaven. At the end of Matthew 5, 48, he says, be ye therefore perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. If you're going to enter the kingdom, you've got to be like a little child. You've got to be perfect. Oh, that's stunning. Then John 3 gives us another staggering statement. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You can't even see it or comprehend it. You won't lay eyes on it unless you are born again. What do we do with all of this? Just down a few verses. Verse 25, Luke 18. It is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. 
So here's the requirements if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be like a little child. You've got to be absolutely, totally perfect, flawless, divine kind of righteousness. You've got to undergo a completely new birth, a, a recreation. And you cannot in any way be relying on any riches whatsoever. If you have riches, it's basically impossible. By the way, if you have if you live in the United States, you are rich according to Jesus. It's impossible for a rich person, all of us, to enter into the kingdom. Well, how do we enter into the kingdom? Well, look at verse 26. Uh, when they heard it, they who heard it said, Who then can be saved? Answer, no one. No one can make themselves be born again. No one can be perfect in and of themselves. And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. If you're going to enter the kingdom, be a citizen of the kingdom, there cannot be one iota of depending on self. You don't have righteousness that says the scribes and Pharisees Rather the opposite. We have hearts that are corrupt and sinful. We are self-reliant. We are prideful. We are arrogant. We're deceptive. We're lustful. We violate God's law. We break his commandments. We do our own thing. We try to chart our own course. We try to be autonomous and independent and say, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. We're sinners. What is required is a new birth, is for a miracle wrought by God himself. What is needed is righteousness that is not our own to be put onto our account because we don't have it. What do we need? We need the gospel. We need the good news of what Jesus has done. If you're going to enter the kingdom, it's going to be a new birth. There's going to be righteousness from Jesus. You've got to become as a little child. So what does this mean as we flesh this out? In what way do children model for us the attitude that you need to enter the kingdom? By the way, he's not saying um, whoever will not receive the kingdom as a Child, like child is not the, the object there. He's not saying you have to receive the kingdom like you would receive a child. But he's rather saying you need to receive the kingdom the way that, the, that a child would receive it. Think about how children are, how they receive gifts. Think about how children are in responding to their parents. Let me give you some characteristics that I think Jesus has in mind. First off, children model dependence. Dependence. Total dependence. Talk about babies here in the illustration. Babies aren't coming to Jesus on their own. They're being brought. Uh, you know, if you've ever brought a child home from the hospital, there's like this feeling of like the weight of all the universe. Like, I have to keep them alive. Like, they can't do anything for themselves, completely, totally dependent. And it's up to me as a parent with like zero training or qualifications to do this. I was kind of shocked when we left the hospital with Timothy. I'm like, they have no idea if we even have even the slightest clue as to what we're doing here. This is scary, right? Like, you understand that since children completely, totally dependent on their parents. In the same way, those who would enter the kingdom totally and completely dependent on the grace and the mercy and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Total dependence. Helplessly dependent. Like babies... We don't come to Jesus on our own. We get brought. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us, who draws us, who brings us to saving faith. Being like a child means to recognize your utter inability to save yourself. And guess what? Newborn babies don't show up with a resume. Here's my CV of all the things that I have done. 
They don't come along and be like, here's all my you know, academics, here's my report cards, here's the things that I Babies have no achievements to offer to merit your, your kindness and your help. In the same way, we have no achievements to offer to God to merit or deserve his grace or his favor. If you're going to enter into heaven, you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom, it's not going to be because you are a quote-unquote good person. It's going to be because of the kindness of Jesus Christ. You won't enter heaven because you're a loving parent or a faithful husband or a committed church member. You don't enter heaven because you are a good worker or you paid your taxes or you were a good citizen or you were a patriotic American. Enter heaven by coming as a dependent baby to Jesus. Jesus puts it a different way in other passages. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Coming as a a beggar, if you want an economic image. Coming as a filthy sinner who needs to be cleansed. One who is spiritually dead. One who's blind. That's who we are, every last one of us. But children not only model dependence, they model trust. They model trust. Confident trust. Right, kids will... Just come and they'll come running along and just you know, collapse in your arms like figuring, yep, you'll get me. You got me last time. You'll catch me this time. Uh, just complete total trust in mom and dad. Child trusts you not to, to drop him. Trusts you not to, to feed him stuff that he can't eat, right? Trusts you to catch him and do all of those things. This complete and total confidence is what marks us. So we come to Jesus totally dependent, being like, I can't save myself. But we're also not like, yeah, but I'm not really sure if you can. The other side of faith is complete and total confidence that Jesus can and does and will save repentant sinners. We can call this childlike faith. Now, that phrase gets thrown around a lot. I just need childlike faith. And sometimes here's what people mean when they say childlike faith. They just mean blind faith that is devoid of all content. But don't worry about studying the Bible or theology. Just childlike faith. Well, that... There there is real content to our faith. God expects us to hear the message of the gospel. There is real content to what we must believe. It's not just a vague, trust Jesus. We have to figure out who is Jesus. Why should we trust him? Why do I need to trust him? Childlike faith is not contrasted with the content of the Bible. Rather, it is contrasted with arrogant self-reliance. So other passages, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul will say, don't be babies in regards to knowledge. Okay, so this metaphor of childlike trust applies to our sense of confidence and dependence on Jesus. It's not a metaphor for, well, you just don't, you don't, don't ever think. That's, that's not what he's saying. Um, childlike trust. Complete, total dependence on Jesus. Real content to that faith. Real understanding of what God has said and his promises and his word. So children model conversion for us by modeling that dependence we have to have, by modeling that confidence we must have, by modeling humility. Never met a a child, a little child, who rattled off a bunch of reasons for dad to love him. Well, here's 18 reasons why I deserve your love. There's just a humility. A humility in saying, dad does love me, and I'm going to simply enjoy it. That's a mark of a kingdom citizen. My heavenly father loves me, and I'm just going to revel in his love. No sense do I deserve it. No sense do I merit it. I just enjoy it. Jim read that beautiful psalm earlier in the service, Psalm 131, which is a beautiful 
description of childlike trust. Maybe Jesus has this in mind when he says, you've got to be like a child to enter the kingdom. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Isn't it sort of natural in our world today for everybody to want to have their sort of hot take on everything? Like, I, I know more about the motivations of the president than even the president does, right? Like, you see people on Twitter coming up with, I know all these things going on in our world, and I can pontificate on this and that, and all of these things about which we, let's be honest, we don't really know much about. Um, people will talk about there's an inverse relationship between uh, certainty and knowledge, like the less you know, the more certain you are, right? Um, how often do we fall into that, where we become haughty, and I know all these things, and I'm smart, and I... Rather than saying, I'm just a little child, one of the marks of childlike trust, my eyes are not haughty. I don't exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. I, I stay in my lane as a, as a child. Surely I behaved myself and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. Yet there's a big difference between a child before he gets his milk and after he gets his milk. So you're, you're the latter one where you're just resting in the arms of God. Just rest, reliance, humility. My soul is even as a weaned child, just resting in his promises. Children model humility. So they model dependence, they model trust, they model humility. Which, by the way, humility is an essential facet of saving faith. Finally, children model receptivity. He says here uh, in Luke 18, 17, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child. You notice little children don't have any difficulty or any qualms about receiving, about taking food. Your hand is going to be out, right? You can tell it's turned into selfishness, I know. But there's, a, there's not a, that pride that we get when we get older. We're like, nobody's going to help me. Uh, I'd rather do it myself, even though I don't know what I'm doing, than ask someone for help or get directions or what, you know, Google it. Um, children don't have that struggle. Children don't have that challenge in receiving gifts. If you go to a child's birthday party, the paper is flying every rich way. Uh, children receive everything, right? They have no hang-ups about getting a gift. And this is instructive. If you're going to enter the kingdom, be a kingdom citizen, your declaration of dependence means, I receive it as a gift. Someone else paid for the gift. Someone else offered the gift. Faith is simply the hand that receives the gift. My faith is not you know, meriting or deserving. No, it's just receiving this gift of forgiveness of eternal life. James Edwards says this, Jesus does not bless the children for their virtues, but for their deficits. The kingdom is offered to the helpless, the needy, the powerless, and weak. What a good reminder. Now, here's my question. Do you see yourself as helpless, needy, powerless, and weak? That's an essential attitude for anyone who's going to enter the kingdom. If you see yourself any other way, there's a very good chance that you have not entered into the kingdom because this is the doorway that Jesus marks out. Is this modeled in your life? Even as a believer, do you still have this... Okay, you say, I'm born again. I know that I am saved. I've gone through the doorway of saving faith, repentance in Jesus. But has that haughtiness begun to come back into your, into your soul? Has pride begun to creep into your thinking? Where you begin to think, you know what? I can, I can do this on my own. I'm 
independent. I'm a big boy. I can, I can do this. Or is that humility that says, I need him every hour, every minute. Go to him in prayer as a child asking for a father's favor. Have you come to Jesus in, in dependent faith, in helpless dependence? Has there been a time in your life that you have repented of your sins, that you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit of God, and come recognizing, I'm a sinner, and I don't have anything, and I'm going to throw myself on Jesus. I'm going to put my reliance on his death on the cross that has satisfied God's wrath and paid for my sin. I'm going to put my confidence in the resurrection in the empty tomb. Or are you still this morning trusting in your own goodness, your own works? Are you trusting this morning in, well, I prayed a prayer at one point in my life and I really meant it, so I'm trusting my sincerity to get me to heaven. Or are you trusting in Jesus? Do you love Jesus like a child loves a parent? Just freely, naturally, not afraid to show it. And sometimes I think we come together for church and we're going to sing and we're going to worship and we're just a little bit too big to like show excitement. I want to be one of those people. I'm going to be serious and austere and I'm going to be reverent. Like now we should be reverent, but what does that mean? There should be a childlike joy in our singing Think of a kid on Christmas morning. The exuberance is not like manufactured. It's just like, yay, I get to open gifts. Like, there should be a sense of that when we gather to worship. Even if it doesn't come out physically, it's okay if it does. But even if it doesn't, that should be present in our hearts where it's like, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Or is it, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Like, can you sing that? Like, if that's true, what's that doing in your heart? So many, so many applications we can go, go with here. But the main one Jesus wants to draw our attention to, have you received the kingdom like a little child? Have you received the kingdom independence? Have you received the kingdom in confidence? Have you received the kingdom with this humble faith? Have you received it with this receptive, my hands are open, ready to receive kind of way? And does that mark your life, beloved? Kingdom citizenship does not belong to those who declare their independence but those who declare their dependence belongs to those who come as little children, needy, with arms outstretched to daddy. And listen, it belongs to no...